Today we are in Mark chapter 10, once again continuing our series, Who Does Jesus Love? Mark chapter 10, and we're going to pick it up today in verse 46. So follow along as I read. It says, Now they came to Jericho, and as he, he being Jesus, went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he arose and came to Jesus. And so Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful, as we were just singing, of your faithfulness. That you are faithful in the lives of your people. Lord, I thank you that you always move in a positive way toward the desperate heart. And as we see that today in this passage, in this story before us, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged, that we could learn about your heart and learn from this blind man, this outcast, Bartimaeus. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. It was a Swiss physician, Paul Tournier, who has actually been called the 20th century's most famous Christian physician. He said this, I am convinced that nine out of every 10 people who go to see a psychiatrist don't need one. What they need is someone who will show them God's love and they will get better. Now, that might be a very simplistic way to look at things, but I think in some people's lives, that actually might be the truth. Because when somebody gets exposed to the love of Jesus Christ, it has a way of transforming their lives. In fact, we've seen that over and over again in the stories that we've been looking at in this series, Who Does Jesus Love? Where somebody encounters Jesus in in desperate straits and their life is transformed by the love of Jesus. In fact, I'm looking out at a room full of people and I know a lot of your stories. and, And your story is this, that your life has been transformed by the love of Jesus. So for that reason, I agree wholeheartedly with what Billy Graham once said. He said, if you really knew the love of God towards you, it would transform your life. Well, today we see another one of those transforming stories. The title of the message today is Jesus Loves Outcast. And here in our story, we see that Jesus heals a blind man who was actually an outcast in his city. His name is Bartimaeus. Let's first of all look at who was Bartimaeus. Our text tells us that he was a blind beggar. So every single day of his life would be filled with this longing, with this searching, with this wondering, where are my needs going to be satisfied today? 
Bartimaeus seems to be somebody who was actually known pretty well in his city because Mark doesn't just call him a blind man, but he actually refers to his name, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Now, some people, though, think that the the name Bartimaeus was actually kind of a nickname because it literally means the son of the unclean. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know who would uh, name their kid that. Son of the unclean, right? You know, comes out and look at him like, what should we call him? Son of the unclean. And so some people think that, that this was actually a nickname that was given to Bartimaeus because in that culture, they believed that blindness oftentimes was the result of somebody's sin. It was an erroneous belief, but, but they believed that. In fact, remember when Jesus' disciples asked him about someone and they said, was he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, neither, because, you know, it wasn't a result of sin. But they used to think that. Way. So they called him son of the unclean. It could also be that him being a blind beggar, like a lot of people we see on a daily basis in you know, our city and around our area who are homeless, it could be that oftentimes Bartimaeus was just kind of unkept. Maybe he looked a little dirty, and so they gave him this nickname. But my point is, is I want you to know that everybody knew who he was. He was well known in the city. Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, was an outcast. Now, why would I say that? I want you to look at verse 48. Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus, and notice what it says. It says, then many warned. Everybody say warned. Many warned him to be quiet. The word warned there is more than a shh. It wasn't Bartimaeus, shh. No, no, that word warned speaks of a rebuke. It was the idea that they yelled at him and said, Bartimaeus, shut up. In essence, what they were saying is somebody like Jesus doesn't have time for you. Somebody like Jesus is too busy for someone like you. So Bartimaeus, stop yelling now. But here's the thing I want you to notice. Not only was Bartimaeus an outcast, but Bartimaeus although he was blind, saw more than most. Notice again how Bartimaeus refers to Jesus. He doesn't call out, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that's what the people were saying. Bartimaeus is blind. He hears a crowd. He hears a a commotion. He's like, hey, what's going on? And everybody says, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's here again. That's how they referred to Jesus. But Bartimaeus, it says, starts to yell out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What's the significance of that? Well, in the Jewish culture, that phrase, the son of David, is what they used to refer to the Messiah. Because the Messiah was going to come from the lineage of David. So they believed that somebody who was the Messiah, that they would call him the son of David. So in essence, what Bartimaeus was saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah, have mercy on me. And I love this. Bartimaeus sees more than most. Now this is interesting though. Bartimaeus never saw Jesus do a miracle He didn't see him feed the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fish. He didn't see Bartimaeus turn the water into wine. He didn't see Bartimaeus uh, bring Lazarus back from the dead. So how could Bartimaeus speak so definitively, definitively about who Jesus was? How could he say, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. Have mercy on me. 
I think it's because Bartimaeus had obviously heard about Jesus. He heard about the miracles. He heard about his sermons and the things that he was teaching. And from everything that Bartimaeus heard about Jesus, he came to the conclusion he must be the Messiah. And I think there's some significance in this for us because the Bible says that we who are followers of Christ, that we don't walk by sight, but we walk by faith. But our faith has facts. Our faith has evidence that is attached to it. Christianity is not a blind faith. It's not some sentimental theory, but it's based on hard facts and hard evidence. And at the top of that evidence is the fact that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. You see, when somebody predicts their own murder, which Jesus did, and then predicts that three days later they would rise again from the dead, and that's exactly what happens, we believe that's somebody that we need to follow, especially when he says, I am the only way to heaven, and I'm the only way that you can know God. And guys, that's the power of the gospel. That's the gospel message, that Jesus left heaven, came to this earth, went to the cross, predicted his own crucifixion and murder, but also predicted that three days later he would rise again from the dead, and that's exactly what he did. And he says, anybody who believes in him would be saved and have eternal life. There is power, my friends, in that message. And so we should not be ashamed or we should not be shrink back in sharing the gospel. Oftentimes we, we get this way. We think, oh, I'm just not articulate enough. I just don't know enough. Listen, the message is not in the messenger. It's in the message. And there's power in this message. So Bartimaeus heard the news about Jesus and believed that he was the Messiah. The third thing I want you to know is that Bartimaeus asked for the right thing. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He asks for mercy. And that's interesting because mercy means not getting what you do deserve. So he's saying, hey, Jesus, give me what I don't deserve. And you know what? Even little kids know that. Kids don't even know anything about the Bible. Somehow they know when they get in trouble to cry out, mercy, mercy, mom, mercy, dad. My son, when he was young, he had a flair for the dramatic. And sometimes he would get in trouble. And he would cry. He would literally he'd fall on the ground, grab my leg and say, Mercy, Dad, mercy, mercy on me. And he knew what he was saying. I know I deserve a spanking, but look, but Dad, you know, give me mercy. I think the neighbors used to think, what is going on at the Savato house, you know? They'd hear my son yelling out, you know, for, for mercy. I think, though, that one of the signs that a person is growing in their walk with Jesus is when they really start to realize what they have been saved from. You see, it's when we realize that what I really deserved was God's wrath. What I really deserved was God's vengeance. What I really deserve because of my sin and my rebellion was hell. I deserve that. But God extended his mercy to me. 
and his mercy to you. I love what a pastor by the name of David Mathis said. He said, wrath is God's righteous response to evil, but it's not his heart. Justice is the stem and mercy is the flower. I love that picture. That when justice is planted in the soil of God's love, the flower of mercy is the result. But in order for God to extend that mercy to us, somebody had to take the punishment. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he did. Remember when Moses is on Mount Sinai? And Moses asked God, Moses was bold, and he says, Lord, I have one more request. Can I see your glory? And God says, you know, Moses, I'm sorry, but no one can see my face and live. But I tell you what I will do for you. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll allow my backside to pass by. And then as I do, I'm going to proclaim my attributes to you. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. In essence, what God was saying, Moses, what you need to understand, my glory is wrapped up in my identity. And so there Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. God passes by and he proclaims his name. And this is what he says. I'm the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now it's that last phrase that doesn't bode well for us. Because see, all of us, we were guilty. Because of our sin and our rebellion. And he says, by no way, by no means am I going to clear that. We were guilty, but this is what God did. He sent Jesus to take the punishment that we deserved. He took that upon himself so that he could extend to us his life. And he could extend to us his mercy and extend to us his grace. And this is what we're celebrating today. At the end of our service, we're going to partake of communion together. And in communion, we remember that Jesus' body, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, was broken for us. That he went to the cross and he took the punishment upon himself that we deserved. And his blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. And because Jesus did that, God could bestow his grace and mercy and his loving kindness on all who would put their faith in Jesus. So I think it's important for us to remember that following Jesus starts with embracing the fact that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. That I'm a sinner and I need mercy. And so we see Bartimaeus is asking for the right thing. The fourth thing I want you to notice is that Bartimaeus would not be shut down by the cancel culture of his day. Bartimaeus is calling out for mercy, and the crowd tries to cancel him. Shut up, Bartimaeus. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. Basically, what they were saying is, you are insignificant, you don't have a voice, you need to be quiet. And you know, the world around us right now is trying so hard to silence Christians. In this cancel culture that we live in, the world around us is trying to silence us. They label us as intolerant, as haters, as prejudiced, as bigots. Now, I will say this. To be honest, there are some Christians who can come across that way. 
Very antagonistic. But I want you to note something here about Bartimaeus. Don't miss this. Bartimaeus is not yelling at the people who are yelling at him and telling him to shut up. He's not saying, you shut up. No, he's not yelling at the people who are yelling at him. Who is Bartimaeus yelling out to? Jesus. And guys, there's something that we can learn from this. It doesn't do us any good when Christians are yelling at our culture. It only makes us come across as being antagonistic. You know, the Bible says that the godly in Christ, this is a promise that most people don't like to claim, the godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So if you are naming the name of Jesus and trying to walk in truth, know this, the Bible says you can count on you will be persecuted. But you know what? Some Christians suffer because they're jerks. Some Christians can suffer because they're just intense and they're mean and they're yelling at culture and they're coming across as being hateful. It's been said that Jesus has been the victim of a lot of bad PR and a bunch of it has come from his friends. I think there's some truth to that. Listen, Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by how obnoxious you are. No, he didn't say that. They'll know that you are my disciples by how loud you are yelling back at them. No, he didn't say that. No, he says, they'll know that you are my disciples by your love. And I think we can learn something here from Bartimaeus. Because Bartimaeus is standing strong in his convictions. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah and he's yelling out to him. And when the crowd says, hey, be quiet, shut up, Bartimaeus, he's like, I'm going to yell even louder. Jesus, son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus is standing strong in his convictions about who Jesus is. But when he's rebuked, he's not shouting back at the people. No, he's crying out to Jesus. And I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says, and he shouted out even louder. And I think we need to learn the same balance. That we are to cry out to Jesus while standing firm in our convictions. We cry out to Jesus standing firm in our convictions and not backing down at all in our convictions. So, for example, when Governor Newsom said last year that we Christians in our churches needed to not sing, that we couldn't sing because the virus might spread if we were singing, And there was no scientific uh, evidence to back that up at all. But he laid that out and we said, not sing? We're going to sing even louder. Because Jesus deserves our worship. Because Jesus is our king. Because Jesus is on the throne. And we we weren't going to back down from our convictions. But we yelled out. We cried out to Jesus. So we continue to be passionate about the things that Jesus is passionate about 
in the midst of great antagonism. And we need to work hard to show the people who are antagonistic against us what the love of Jesus looks like. So we stand firm in the truth. We stand for righteousness. We speak out about abortion. And we say that it's wrong. And that Roe versus Wade needs to be turned back around. We stand strong for that. But we speak the truth in love. You see, that's what the Lord told us to do. We speak the truth in love. So we lovingly condemn tyranny. We lovingly condemn immorality. And we lovingly condemn sin in our culture. Always remembering this, that Jesus hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And he sees these people who are off doing these sinful things and his heart breaks for them because it's for people just like that, just like us, that he left heaven and came to this earth to die on a cross so that they could be saved. So we can learn something here from our friend Bartimaeus who stood in his convictions But he cried out even louder, not at his accusers, but he cried out to the Lord. So Bartimaeus would not be silenced. And notice what it says next, that Jesus stood still. The idea there is he stopped. I love this. And he called for him. This is such a beautiful picture because it reminds us that Jesus is the God who hears When we cry out to him, he hears us. You know, sometimes we can wrestle with that. I know I do. Sometimes I can cry out to the Lord and I can feel like, man, I just don't feel like my my prayers are even penetrating the ceiling. But we need to know God hears. And he is particularly drawn to the desperate heart. In fact, when we see in the Gospels, Jesus always responds in a positive way to the desperate heart. And here we see a man who's desperate. Here we see a man who will not be silent, who will be persistent. And when he's told not to cry out, what does he do? He cries out even louder, and his cry reaches the ears of Jesus, and Jesus stops. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that the Lord is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that word diligently means passionately and desperately seek him. May we be a church. May we be a group of individuals who who are seeking Jesus in that way, passionately and deliberately. Now, what happens next is an easy thing to miss, but I think it's absolutely fascinating. Look at verse 50. It says, in throwing aside his garment, speaking of Bartimaeus, he arose and came to Jesus. Now, this might seem like a very insignificant point and an easy thing for us to overlook, but I think this is actually a huge thing happening in this story. Bartimaeus, Jesus calls him, and Bartimaeus takes off his coat, and he literally throws it aside. Why would he do that? Because I think Bartimaeus, what he's doing here is he's leaving behind his identity because that garment that coat represented a lot in that culture beggars would wear very distinct coats usually they were kind of long so they'd cover their legs 
when it would get cold. And they had these pockets that were sewn into the inside of them so that they could put their donations and the money and the different things that they got into these pockets and it would protect them from pickpockets that would come along. So this coat literally represented Bartimaeus's livelihood and it represented his identity. When Bartimaeus would be out and about and he's going through town and people would see him, maybe from the back, and they would see, oh, there's Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is out today. Because they know that that coat was his identity. It represented who he was. And so by taking it off and throwing it aside, Bartimaeus was laying aside the very thing that spoke of his livelihood and his identity. Now, why would he do that? Faith. Faith. You see, he believed that Jesus was going to do a work in his life and that he was going to become a new person. He believed, I'm taking this coat off, I'm throwing it aside because I'm not going to need it anymore. He believed that Jesus was going to make him well. And I want you to note this, church. You see, coming to Jesus is not about him making you a better version of yourself. But it's recognizing that he wants to make you an entirely different person. He doesn't want to make you a better version of yourself. What he wants to do is to make you more like Jesus. That's what I like to call God's end game or his goal. Because we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, God says that this is his goal for all of us who are his followers is to transform us into the image of his own dear son. That's the target. That's the goal. And we need to recognize that. Because that's huge. You see, if I'm simply thinking that Jesus is only wanting to make me into a better version of myself, I will settle for much, much less. And I will be prone to compare myself with others. Other people become the gauge. And here's the thing. I can feel good about myself when I'm doing that because I can always find somebody worse than me. You know? My life might be a mess, but I can always, just give me a little bit of time, I can find someone whose life is messier. I might be struggling as a husband or as a father, but I can always find some guy out there who's a worse dad than me, and I can say, I'm doing really good because I'm not like him, you know? But here's the problem. That other person, they're not the target. God is wanting to make us more like Jesus. Jesus is the target. Jesus is the standard. But here's the good news. God is committed to completing. He's faithful, like we were seeing, to complete the work that he has begun in you. And that work is to make you more like Jesus. But listen, for some of us, if not all of us, that process is going to involve you being willing to lay aside your identity. The thing that you're holding on to. We actually have seen a beautiful picture of this in our Wednesday night study in the book of Philippians. Because there in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is giving his testimony. And he's speaking of his life prior to coming to Christ. He's speaking about where his identity was at. And he was a very religious person. He says, I was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had this incredible status. And he had this incredible 
pedigree. And all of that represented Paul's identity. It was what people, they looked up to him. They held him in high regard because of all of that. But Paul says there in Philippians, after coming to Christ, he says, all of that, everything that represented who I was, I've counted that as loss. As garbage, he says. That I might be found in Christ. That I might be found in Him. In other words, what Paul was saying, I counted everything that I used to be as garbage, as loss, that I might find my identity in who I am in Jesus. And we noted in our Wednesday night study that that Paul said, I counted it as loss, like when he first got saved, past tense. But then he said, and I continue to count it as loss, present tense. Now, why would Paul need to continue to count it as loss? Here's why. Our flesh is constantly wanting us to find our identity in something other than Jesus. And so Paul said, I counted it as loss and I continue to count it as loss. Every time it kind of raises its head because I want my identity to be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's what God wants for all of us. You know, I think a similar thing is happening in Genesis chapter 22. We talked about this a week or so ago. In Genesis chapter 22, we find Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your only son Isaac, take him up to Mount Moriah, and sacrifice him to me. Put him on the altar, Abraham, and sacrifice him to me. Now, why would God do that well there's a lot of implications but i think one of them is this isaac represented abraham's identity why do i say that remember this was abraham's story abraham was living in ur of the chaldees when all of a sudden god appears to him and says abraham i want you to leave this place i want you to leave this land and go to this new land that i'm going to show you and then he makes abraham this promise he says and i am going to make of you and your descendants, a great nation. The problem was, Abraham didn't have any kids, and he was old. But Abraham believed. He believed in the promise of God. He believed in what God was saying. He takes this giant step of faith and begins to go and allow God to lead him to this, this new land, believing what God is that God's going to come through on this promise. Now imagine, Abraham comes cruising into your village with his posse. And you see Abraham and you're like, you know, who are you and what are you doing out here? And Abraham tells you his story. Well, I was living in Ur and the God of heaven appeared to me and he told me that he was going to make of me a great nation and he wanted me to, to, you know, follow him to this new land that he was going to lead me to. And you hear that and you're like, wow, that's really amazing. That's incredible. How many kids do you have? None. Because he didn't have any kids at that point. And how old are you? 75? And how old's your wife? 65? Can you imagine the whispers? Did you meet that guy, Abraham? He's a loony tune. He's nuts. He thinks God's going to make of him a great nation. And, and he's out here wandering around in the wilderness. People always thought he was nuts, that he was crazy. But then Isaac was born. The miraculous child. And and Abraham had to wait. He had to wait 25 years. He was 100 when when Isaac was born. 
Sarah's 90. But Isaac is born, and suddenly it's validation. It's like, see, here's the miracle birth and the promised child. This is the validation of God's promise. I'm not crazy. This is what God is going to do. But then all of a sudden, God comes and says, now I want you to take that boy and put him on the altar and sacrifice him to me. Because God was wanting Abraham to sacrifice the very thing that his identity was wrapped up in. Because God wanted his identity to be wrapped up in him alone. And you know what? God does the same thing to us, I think, all the time. He's always asking us to put that thing or to put that person that represents our identity, who we are, on the altar so that our identity can be found solely in our relationship with Jesus. That everything in our life would be seen through the lens of who we are in Christ. In fact, today at the end of our service, some people are going to get baptized. And that's really what baptism is symbolizing. It symbolizes an identification. Baptism is something you do to, uh, to, to share that God has done an inward work inside of you. And so you're going to declare that outwardly by coming into the waters of baptism. And so in baptism, you're identifying yourself with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so when the pastor is with you there in the water and he takes you and he dunks you down under the water, that's representing and identifying a death. That your old identity and who you were apart from Christ, that is being buried along with all of your sins, being buried in the waters of baptism like Jesus was buried in the grave. And then when you come up out of the water, it symbolizes a resurrection. And it's you then at that moment saying, I want to identify right now with my new life. That I'm now following Jesus. The old Rob has been buried. My old identity has been buried. And now I want to walk in this newness of life of who I am in Christ. Who I am in Jesus. And I think there might be some of you that didn't register to be baptized today. That maybe God's calling you right now to be baptized today. And that's okay. We've got some t-shirts you can put on and, and you can, we have some towels. And, but, but if you're in that sense and you realize, you know, my identity, it hasn't been in Christ. And maybe sometime, you know, in the past you were baptized. But it really didn't mean anything at that point in your life. Let today, let it be a declaration point. I want my identity to be in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So Bartimaeus, he throws aside his coat, the thing that represented his identity because he knew that he was going to gain that day a new identity, not as a blind man, but now as a man who could see. I want you to notice also that Jesus asked him an obvious question. There in verse 51, it says, so Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? That's an obvious question. Jesus did this a lot, right? He asked people these obvious questions, like, like the man who's been laying at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, we looked at this a few weeks ago, for 38 years. And Jesus comes by and goes, do you want to walk? And you're like, duh, you know, that's why I'm here. And here, he has a blind man that comes to him. Jesus says, what can I do for you? It's an obvious question. Why does Jesus do that? Why does he ask such obvious questions? I think the answer is bound up in the power of the first beatitude. 
You see, the first beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you see, to become poor in spirit is to realize your utter dependency upon God for everything. And so Jesus wants needy people to confess their need because it illustrates that poor in spirit mindset. It's confessing that this is something that I can't change about me. I can't do this. This is only something that you can change. And so listen, I think Jesus in the Bible asks needy people to confess their obvious need to be an example to all of us to do the same thing about our unobvious needs. You see, we all have those things in our lives that we have to finally come to that place that we realize, I can't fix this. And sometimes we try and we try and we try and we put all through this effort and we fail and we fail and we fail and we're trying to fix something about us or in our lives that we can't fix, that only Jesus can fix. And it's been said that when a man comes to the end of himself, he, becomes to the, he comes to the beginning of God. And that's really what being poor in spirit really means. It's coming to that place where we recognize and we realize, I can't fix this. I can't change this. Lord, I need you to do this in me. It's coming to that place where you realize about that thing and really about everything that you are utterly dependent upon Jesus. So Jesus asked this obvious question. The last thing I want you to notice is that Bartimaeus made it personal. Look at verse 51 again. Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Everybody say Rabboni. Now, most people, when they talked and referred to Jesus, they called him rabbi. And that was a respected term. It was something that you would call somebody who was teaching you, somebody that you were following, somebody that you admired. It's like rabbi. It was, it was a term of respect. Rabboni makes it personal. Rabboni doesn't just mean teacher and master. It means my master, my teacher, my Lord. So Bartimaeus here moves from the casual and respectful view of who Jesus was to the more intimate and reverent view when he says, he doesn't call him rabbi, but he calls him Rabboni. And the only other person who referred to Jesus in that way was Mary Magdalene on the day of the resurrection. When she encounters Jesus there in the garden, she said, and she's a woman whose life had been radically transformed by the grace and love of Jesus, and she sees him when he says, Mary, it's me, and she says, Rabboni, my master, my teacher, my Lord. And so I ask you this question tonight. Who is Jesus, or this morning, who is Jesus to you? Is he rabbi or is he Rabboni? You know, David wrote in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. A lot of people know him as the shepherd, but listen, he wants you to know him as your shepherd. That he would be the center and the focus of your life. Notice how this ends. It says, and immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Jesus transforms him. 
and it results in him following Jesus. Will you follow Jesus today? Will you be willing to lay aside your identity, that thing that you've been holding on to that everybody knows is that this is who you are? Will you be willing to lay that aside to find your identity in Jesus? That's what he wants. That's why he said, hey, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I'm going to ask the band to come out right now. And as we move into this time of communion, this is really what we are acknowledging as we partake of communion today. We're acknowledging the fact that the body of Jesus was broken. Because he took the punishment. It was ravaged on the cross. Because he took the punishment that we deserved. We're acknowledging that his blood was shed. So that our sins could be forgiven. And our guilt could be removed. We're acknowledging and remembering that we were sinners. In need of a savior. And in need of mercy. And if you're here today and you've never, ever put your faith in Jesus Christ, or maybe you professed Christ at one time in your life, but then you walked away from him, today he's saying to you, will you find your identity in me? Will you put your faith in who I am and what I did for you? And that's what we're doing as we partake of communion today. Now, the Bible warns, it says that we should not partake of communion in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? Well, to partake in an unworthy manner, it means that I know everything that the cross represents of what Jesus did for me in order to save me and cleanse me from my sin, but I'm going to continue in my sin and in my rebellion. The Bible says, hey, if if that's where you're at, don't, don't do that. That's partaking in an unworthy manner. But there's another option. The other option is to turn from your sin and turn to your Savior. It's to cry out for Him today. Lord, mercy! And you know what? He is so willing and able and ready to give it to you. Because Jesus always responds in the positive way to the desperate heart. So if that's you today, I just encourage you as we begin to worship, you just tell Jesus, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Lord, I need mercy. When we're done partaking of communion, I'm going to ask those of you who signed up to be baptized today, when you're personally done, and you can, we're going to worship, you can partake on your own. When you're personally done partaking, make your way over here to my left. Pastor Jesse's going to meet you. He's going to baptize during this service. And he'll bring you up over into the water. But maybe you're here today and, and you, weren't, you didn't plan on getting baptized. It wasn't something that you had, you know, registered and decided. But God's been speaking to you right now. And what he's been speaking to you about is the very fact that your identity is not in Jesus. And today is a very good opportunity for you to change that in the waters of baptism. So I just want to encourage you. You didn't sign up. That's okay. We've got towels. We've got T-shirts. Just get up, make your way over, and let today be a day that you are declaring, I want to be identified with Jesus. I want my identity to be in Him. 
Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you love us with such a perfect love. We thank you, Lord, that you respond in the positive always to the cry of the desperate heart. That when we were sinners, because of our rebellion and separated from God, you came to our rescue and you extended to us mercy. You took our shame and our guilt upon yourself that you might extend to us your love, your grace, and your forgiveness. And so, Lord, today, it's with joyful hearts that we partake of communion. It's with a spirit of celebration that we cheer on those today getting baptized. We love you, Lord. Be glorified in the remainder of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.